Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In December 1992, Hindu nationalists seized the Babri Masjid Mosque and tear it down, proclaiming their wish to build a Hindu temple in its stead. This brazen act of destruction sparks riots throughout the country, particularly in Mumbai, where Muslims and Hindus clash in the streets. An estimated 900 people, both Muslim and Hindu, die in the violence. The riots are the backdrop of Lindsay Pereira's latest novel, The Memoirs of Almiki Rao. The digital Rao is a retired postman living in the slums decades after the riots tore through his community. But he's also a writer, writing the life of one neighbor in particular, Rama, once a youth leader beset by tragedy amid the riots. Lindsay Pereira is a journalist and editor. He was co-editor of Women's Voices. His first novel, Gods and Ends, was shortlisted for the 2021 JCB Prize for Literature and the Todd Literature Live First Book Award. Today, Lindsay and I talk about the 1990s, these communities in India, and how his novel parallels one of the classic works of a literature, the Ramayana. So, Lindsay, thank you for coming on the show today. You know, maybe start with a general question about the book. You know, what what pushed you to write this novel in the first place? Um, Thank you for having me, um, Nicholas. I think it was anger that pushed me. Um, The riots that took place in 92, I think you've mentioned how, you know, you've mentioned the event, you've mentioned that there were people who died, there were repercussions, not just in India, but in Pakistan and, and Bangladesh for a while. And by the time it affected Bombay, which is a city I was born and grew up in, it um, took uh, a toll not just on uh, the lives of people in that month, but uh, in other ways that we, I, I believe the city continues to pay the price for. Uh, there were bomb blasts in retaliation a month after the riots um, in in December, in, so in January, there were the bomb blasts in Bombay that took another two hundred odd lives, affected another fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred people, and it changed the way um, maps were drawn in Bombay. It created a series of ghettos. It pushed uh, minority communities into specific parts of the city and rearranged the way Bombay was built. I was a teenager at the time. I didn't fully understand the repercussions of what what was going on. But I see now with the benefit of hindsight, three decades after the fact, that the city I was born and grew up in is no longer the place that I, I no longer a place I recognize. And I can draw a line from what Bombay is today to that event in 92. And when I began writing uh, the memoirs of Valmiki Rao, I thought it was time for me to try and make that line seem a little more obvious using fiction. So, so that was what pushed me. So let's talk about this period of time. Um, you know, it's a particularly tense period in India's history. Um, well, they, they all seem like tense periods at the moment. Um, but, you know, what's happening in India and in Mumbai in particular, kind of during the, the period in which most of the book is set? Um, there's a lot of anger. Uh, I think that's a predominant emotion when I think of it now. Uh, I remember as a teenager um, taking the bus and the bus moving past bodies that were on the street covered in white linen, which isn't something that I think teenagers ought to be um, exposed to. And I remember um, curfews 
I remember being asked to stay indoors. I remember entire neighborhoods shutting down for days at a time. I remember neighborhood patrols uh, on the on the terraces of buildings at night to try and make sure that no mobs would attack specific uh, communities that had large minority populations. Uh, so it was a period of darkness. There was a lot of anger. Uh, there was a surprising amount of um, hate that was being peddled uh, by political leaders who ought to have known better. And I think that it led to not just violence. There were a lot of people murdered on the streets. There was a lot of state-sponsored violence, but it also changed the way uh, regular people, the, the residents of Bombay, began to look at each other. And that feeling of distrust has not fully gone away. A lot of people who were indicted by a commission uh, in, in, in the years of, after the riots uh, didn't go to jail. They didn't pay a price for anything they did. And what was uh, quite insulting, I think, is that some of them ended up being government ministers and their children continue to um, hold uh, significant portfolios in, in, in the state of Maharashtra, uh, of which you know the, the, the capital of Maharashtra is, is Bombay, where, where, where the book is set. I think that um, when I look at the riots now, I try and envisage uh, the sense of injustice that the descendants of people who lost their lives during the riots must feel. And uh, that feeling of anger and distrust has never fully left the city, in my opinion. Um, so what about the communities that, you know, your characters like Valmiki Rao, Rama, Raviana, um, all of these characters, um, what are these communities actually like and what's life like for the people that lived in them? You know, opportunities, challenges. Um, and I think, I think kind of the interplay between these communities plays a, plays a really important part in, in the novel. Uh, I think that uh, when you talk about opportunities or challenges, one of the ways of answering that question is to try and look at the causes of the riots. You know, when, when, when the Sri Krishna commission, which is a commission that was, put forth to try and analyze why the riots took place and who ought to be held responsible for them. They came up with a series of causes that they listed. You know, some of the causes were class conflict, because obviously there was this tremendous gap between rich and poor that has only increased in the years since. Uh, there was a lot of uh, economic competition, uh, fewer jobs for the English-speaking uh, masses as opposed to uh, people in, in smaller communities who spoke regional languages and didn't have access to education and the opportunities that education offered them. Uh, there was unemployment, uh, which led to a large group of people who felt disenfranchised, uh, didn't have access to uh, uh, higher incomes. And this coincided with the introduction of satellite television in 92, when India, uh, you know, decided to liberalize its economy and opened up its doors to the rest of the world. We suddenly had access to Star TV. We suddenly had access to what the world was doing. And there was a large group of people who suddenly felt that they had no access to uh, not just money, but a lifestyle that a small percentage of people uh, took for granted. Um, this coupled with you know, a large population and the way the political discourse was changing, uh, I think had an impact on all of these communities. So, so these were the challenges. It was economic, it was linguistic, um, and there was this political class that chose to exploit these, um, these issues and turn it into what became a... a um, 
a bit of a war for, for lack of a better word. Um, and I, I have one more question about, I guess the, the setting before we start moving into, into the novel itself. Um, but the Shiv Sena play an important role in this narrative. I mean, they offer a, they offer a home to Rama as he's growing up. Um, they are also, I think a, a group that is encouraging a lot of the violence that takes part throughout the novel. Um, what exactly are the Shiv Sena for, for, I guess our listeners who might not, who might not know what this party is. Um, they are a political body. They, they've been around for a little over 50 years now. Uh, but they were formed with a very specific right-wing regionalist, regionalist agenda. Uh, they are Hindu nationalists, and they were founded with the idea of empowering people that they thought were being disenfranchised, people who spoke Marathi primarily. They have been in power for uh, a fairly long period of time. They haven't controlled the state of Maharashtra, but they currently do. Uh, the current chief minister of Maharashtra is from the Shiv Sena, so they're still a very active political party. And they, I believe that they use the riots to gain not just national prominence, but to capture a large percentage of votes where people suddenly start, began to look at them as, um, you know, uh, protectors of, of uh, Hindu nationalism. Um, so they do continue to play a very significant role in in Maharashtra and and Bombay even today. All right. Well, let's get into the into the novel itself. Um, you know the the protagonist of the book, um, Balmiki Rao. I mean, is he's in the title? Um, he's not really the the protagonist. Um, the book is structured as kind of a retelling of of events that happened decades prior during during the riots. Um, why did you decide to structure your book as kind of a, a retelling of events um, of sorts? Um, I don't really look at Valmiki as a protagonist at all, you know, which is why the title refers to it as, as his memoirs. What this effectively does is it removes him from, from the action and it reduces him to the role of commentator. It is uh, structured as a retelling because the epic and the events that are described in the book are intertwined. I cannot speak of the riots without speaking about the influence of myth and religion that led to them. So when I have been speaking about the book to younger people, one of the questions they keep asking me is, why did you have to involve the Ramayana at all? Why could it not just be a story about the riots? And for me, that's a very strange question, probably because I'm older and because I lived through the riots, but because I cannot talk about one without talking about the other. The mosque fell because it was believed that that was a site where Lord Ram was born. Lord Ram is the lead protagonist of this epic called the Ramayan. In my mind, the Ramayan is directly responsible for the way politics, religion, and myth came together to trigger this event that led to the riots. I cannot speak of one and not talk about the other. So um, the question of, you know, why is it structured as a retelling? I think it's it's more a question of how could it not be structured as a retelling? Uh, that was the thing that I grappled with. Um, maybe we should actually talk about what the Ramayana actually is. Um, I know it's one of the great two epics of Indian literature alongside the the uh, Mahabharata, um, but what exactly is is the Ramayana? What, what ha- I guess, and I could give a very short summary of what happens um, in that epic. Um, it's, um, it, it's about the life of a prince of Ayodhya, um, you know, a city that, uh, a city in which the Babri Masjid um, uh, 
stood. Uh, it follows a 14-year exile. Uh, the prince has been exiled to the forest on uh, because of his father on, on the request of his stepmother. He travels across the Indian subcontinent with his wife, Sita, his brother, Lakshman. Uh, Sita is kidnapped by Ravan, who's the king of Lanka, uh, which is Sri Lanka, um, by the way. Uh, that results in uh, another battle. And uh, he eventually returns to Ayodhya with Sita, and he's crowned king. So it's 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 a really long epic. I think it's, uh, you know, over 20,000 verses. It's split into seven Kandas or cantos, uh, which is a structure that I have replicated in the book with seven chapters, uh, and uh, there are over 450 or 500 um, chapters. The Ramayan has been um, translated into a number of languages. It has a, a, a significant influence not just on India but on a number of countries across Southeast Asia. Uh, it has an impact on Bhutan, on Bangladesh, and Pakistan. Um, in Thailand, in Singapore, in Malaysia. So it has a, um, an outsized impact and has an influence on the, the people and culture of all of these countries. And it continues to, for instance, you can travel down the streets of Bali even today, and there are characters from the Ramayana uh, on the streets, you know, in, in terms of, st- in the form of public um, sculpture. So it does continue to have an impact on the lives of uh, and, 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 and the religious beliefs of, of uh, people across Southeast Asia. Um, so while it is one of the largest epics uh, in, in world literature, I think that it isn't as well known as it ought to be, given its importance in that part of the world. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of it being well known, I mean, I, I, um, I admit I started reading the book without... Um, knowing the Ramayana, I think I didn't even realize it was meant to be kind of, um, it was connected to that epic until I think after the fact. Um, and and so when I did go back and did look at the Ramayana story, I was like, oh, I see. I see how this all all connects now. Um, and I'll say, I mean, I mean, I mean the, the, the story stands alone without knowing that it's a it's a retelling of, of, of the Ramayana. Um, but 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 how did you kind of connect the characters um, in your book with the characters of the Ramayana? I mean, obviously there's there's Rama, there's um, there there's Ramayana, there's um, there's Janaki. I mean, even 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 Valmiki Rao is is himself a, a sort of a character from the Ramayana. So how did you actually kind of connect the characters in your novel with the characters in in the in the Ramayana? What 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 changes did you have to make? Um, to make it suit the setting. It, it works in two ways, I think. Let's say, for instance, someone like you who hasn't read the Rama and is reading the book, you're going to just look at them as characters like, you know, um, like Ramesh Shinde or Lahu Shinde or Kavita Shinde. But people who do look at, look at it from the perspective of, some, uh, you know, of, of the Rama and are going to recognize that the names reflect uh, some of the characters in, in the epic. So Ramesh Shinde is, is Ram, Lahu is... Lakshman, Baban Rao, their brother is is Bharata, their stepbrother. Um, Vishnu Mahadev is, is is their father is is uh, another name for King Dashrath, who's who's Rama's father in, in the original epic. Uh, Valmiki's friends, uh, you know, Kanbar Swami and Narahari Kavi, are the names of prominent translators of the Ramayana in other languages. Uh, Janki is another name for the goddess Sita in some tellings of the Ramayana. And Sundar um, is another name for Lord Hanuman. 
So those are some of the things that I, some of the changes I made. I wanted it to not be obvious because as you pointed out, it isn't a, a book that's written only for people who are familiar with the Ramayana. So I had to be a little wary of uh, not making it too obvious. At the same time, I wanted to make sure that there were enough hints, sometimes subtle, sometimes quite overt, for people who would look at it and say, yes, I can look at these characters and draw a line between what the storytelling is doing and what the original epic is is all about. Um, you know, do do you see any kind of similarities in the messages one might take from the Ramayana um, versus the messages that that someone might might take from your book? Um, I mean, again, I've I've not I've not read the Ramayana, so I can't I can't comment from experience. Kind of like what what messages someone pulls from reading that epic, but but in your view, kind of what are the do you see any kind of similarities in the in the lessons one might take from from that epic and and from your work? I like to think I do. You know, uh, when it comes to an epic, a lot of the characters tend to represent the idea of the everyman. You know, this is true of of epics in the West as well. You know, we're looking at um, the Iliad or we're looking at the Odyssey. It has to be the idea of everyman where uh, we're talking about human life. When we're talking about uh, this ideal human, you know, what is it about the relationships that they have? How do you portray characters like the ideal father or the ideal brother or the ideal husband? And... Um, when I look at it from that perspective, I have to point out that the characters of Valmiki um, Rao are two-dimensional. You know, the reason why they are two-dimensional is because I'm not particularly interested in them as characters as much as what they represent, which is different from my first novel, where I was more invested in the characters. I wanted to make sure that the reader would identify with the characters or not identify with the characters based on what the reader thought the character was like. With Valmiki Rao, the characters don't really matter at all. They are not my characters. They are Valmiki's characters. I have just one character in the book. That's Valmiki Ra. How he chooses to define the rest of them is entirely up to him based on how well he thinks he knows them as neighbors, as, as an older person who lives in their vicinity or whatever. So the lessons that one tends to take from this is, um, you know, there are warnings about pride. There are warnings about not straying from the path of truth or righteousness. And I wanted to replicate that, but I also wanted to draw attention to what happens away from the action. You know, I wanted to draw attention to people behind the scenes, the ones who pull the strings. Why does Ram behave the way he do, he does? Why, why is his wife captured? Why does Ravi Anna, who's a two-dimensional villain in some sense, become such a villain? Because he doesn't matter. It's what happens behind the scenes where these, these politicians sitting in the North who are unleashing a wave of violence and bigotry that eventually changes the face of a nation. That was the story I was more interested in, in, in telling. So the characters become less important than the message that their lives tend to um, put across. You know, this is what happens when there are people behind the scenes who are pulling your strings um, you become a pawn in a larger game. And that has played out in India for the past 30 odd years. Uh, later this month, uh, the, the temple, Lord Ram, is going to be inaugurated in, in Ayodhya. It's supposed to be, it's being projected as a massive political win for the current um, political party that runs, that controls India. And it is supposed to be a win for the right-wing Hindu nationalist party called the Bharatiya Janata Party that currently uh, is in power in India. And I wanted the book to, to show that the characters matter less than the people who um, use religion, myth, spirituality 
to draw lines, to um, divide people rather than unite them. And versions of this are playing out not just in India, but I would argue that they're happening across the United States as well. You know, some people in in some political parties tend to use uh, religion to divide. uh, And... uh, the the, the the memoirs of Valmiki Rao is a very good reflection of how that can play out in, in a smaller country. That's what I wanted to do. So that's where those messages from the Ramayan tend to, tend to come across in my mind. Um, what's been the reaction to, to the novel since, since you published? I mean, you, you noted that you, um, that, that, that your students often ask, you know, why, why, why make this about the Ramayan at all? Why, why refer to it? Um, but what's kind of been the reaction from people in India um, upon, upon reading upon reading the memoirs of Almiki Rao? Um, well, the only way I have to gauge, you know, when it comes to these um, responses, I, I have to read the reviews or I have to get a sense of what the reviewers are saying because it's not as if people discuss uh, literature on the streets, you know. It, it doesn't... Uh, it, it's written in English, for one, which means that it's a fairly small audience. Uh, literary fiction does not sell well in India at all because everyone's too busy reading self-help books or books about business. You know, so it's a very small audience. And people don't engage with literature the way they do in more, um, you know, in more, in countries that have a, a, a greater impetus on on studying uh, the arts. India is not one of those countries. So all I have by way of measuring the way it's done is I, I look at how some critics have looked at it. It's been surprisingly positive. Uh, some of them have caught on to what I've been trying to do. When I say surprisingly positive is because I expected a certain number of people to um, take umbrage at the fact that I was, use, I was retelling this epic, you know, because it is, uh, it is an important part of India's culture and heritage. I'm pleasantly surprised and gratified that they chose to look at it in, in a positive light. Uh, I'm glad that they look at it as um, a book that's trying to say something because it does have something to say. And the only questions that came across, as I pointed out earlier, is from younger people who wanted to, um, who couldn't really um, answer why um, the epic had to be there at all. And that was an, an enlightening moment for me because it, A, it made me feel really old. You know, I didn't think I was that old and, and until I began looking at what people on Instagram were saying. And B, because I think it taught me about how with time, people can dissociate uh, myth and reality and start to assume that there are no parallels between the two when uh, for someone older, it's so obvious. So it was a huge learning experience for me. And I'm very glad I spoke to some younger people about that because it taught me more about the book um, when I looked at it from their perspective. Um you know, do do you think these? I mean, obviously, I think in in other um, in other markets. I mean, everyone loves um, retelling Shakespeare in different settings. You know, for example, um, but but in India, um, I mean, this your book isn't the first kind of retelling of an Indian epic that that we've had on the show. We had um, a retelling, kind of kind of a more a more feminist restyling of the Mahabharata on the show. I think a few years ago, um, but you know, <laughs> is there something about? Is there something about the Ramayana? Is there something about the Mahabharata that makes them so ripe for uh, these kinds of retellings or these or these kinds of reinterpretations? Um, I would argue that it isn't just about the Ramayana or the Mahabharata. I think that retellings are important anyway because they help us realize that uh, epics are important not just to the past but also to our, our current time. 
you know, an epic is is always in some sense an exploration of what it means to be human uh, at any given point in time. It's um, it's an organizing point um, of uh, cultural identity in some sense. Uh, it's about social identity. Um, an epic also reflects um, um, the values of a culture, the, the beliefs of a culture at, at, a, at a particular point in time. So when you retell an epic, it gives a writer an opportunity to reflect the values of the time in which that epic is being retold, which is what I have tried to do. I've tried to retell the epic from a contemporary perspective to say that uh, these are the values and beliefs that were held in my city, in my country at that time. And the values and beliefs were not necessarily praiseworthy because they were, they were all driven by bigotry. But that is also a reflection of the times we live in. I think that India today is, is a place of... Mm, enormous bigotry, enormous racism, enormous, there, there's misogyny, there, there are problems with the way people look at um, minorities, problems with the way people look at caste. Um, and these are things that I wanted to draw attention to by retelling a story that was familiar to, to everyone. That's why you read, that's why you retell an epic. And one of the things I used to do, you know, when I studied literature a long time ago, when I was young, uh, one of the texts that was seminal to, to any study of literary theory was a book by um, the Scottish anthropologist called Sir James um, uh, Fraser. He wrote a book called The Golden Bough, and anyone who studies uh, mythology or, or, or religion uh, tends to read that book because what Sir James Fraser does is he, he puts forth the idea that mankind progresses in three stages. You know, we start with the idea of magic. We move through um, religious belief, and then we eventually arrive at scientific thought. And when I look at the Ramayana and the Mahabharat, and I look at it from an Indian's perspective, because I am Indian, I, I try and wonder, you know, because it seems to me that we've never moved beyond the second stage. We moved from magic through religious belief, and then we stopped. We haven't moved beyond that to scientific thought. And that was another thing that drove me to write this book from that perspective, because an epic that was written in the third or fourth century BC continues to have an outsized impact on the politics and the lives of Indians even today. This isn't true of the, the Odyssey. This isn't true of the Iliad. And if it is, then I apologize because it just means I'm not aware of how it's playing out, if it is. But the Ramayana and the Mahabharat affect the lives of Indians today. They affect the politics of in Indians today. They define um, what political class is going to con control a country of one billion. And that's a significantly, um, that makes it a significantly important epic. Uh, it's also interesting to look at how um, these two epics uh, affect not just uh, the political space in India, but also other avenues, our art, our literature, our cinema. There are movies made that are based on the Ramayana even today, uh, which makes it a very vibrant uh, cultural artifact, but it also makes it a potentially dangerous one. And that, for me, was one of the reasons why I chose to retell it and why I believe there will continue to be retellings, different versions and different perspectives of this written by men, women, um, different voices, different representatives of other communities uh, for a really long time to come. Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Lindsay Pereira, author of The Memoirs of Valmiki Rao. Lindsay, I actually have two final questions for you. 
which are um, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but kind of all your work. And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Um, the books are currently available only in the in the Indian subcontinent. So India, Pakistan, Nepal, um, Bhutan, I think, and Bangladesh. Uh, I haven't um, given um, Penguin rights to publish it outside. So I am actively looking for a publisher. And I hope that will happen in the coming year. If that does happen, it means that it will then be available um, at all bookstores and, you know, not just on Amazon India. Um, as for what's next, I have a collection of stories that's scheduled to be published later this year. Uh, I have um, a novella that's just been submitted to my agent, uh, so I don't know if that's ever going to be published, but I hope it will. And I am currently working on a novel that I hope to finish by the end of the year. So I, I am busy. You know, whether or not uh, any of these things that I'm working on will see the light of day is a whole other question. But I'm busy, which I suppose is, is all that matters. Well, good luck now. with finishing all those different all those different projects. <laughs> uh, Thanks, Nicholas. I'm going to need it. Um, so you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick Arai Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow them on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those running in, around, and about Asia. Next week, Joyce for an interview with Agnes Chu, author of Eternal Summer of My Homeland. But before then, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much, Nicholas. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about my book. And uh, thank you very much.